This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So it's a great, great pleasure to be here, uh, in particular because uh, this topic uh, on which I am conducting uh, research and which was a big part of my uh, career and thinking as a physician um, involves everybody. It affects everybody, and the solutions uh, will require um, public thought, public discussion, public advocacy. So uh, great to be here for that opportunity. So I'm going to organize this uh, kind of into three parts. Uh, first, I want to give you uh, a little bit of a sense of the roots and scope of the problem of antibiotic resistance, uh, and then tell you a little bit about the research that uh, I am doing with collaborators at UCSD to try to provide some alternative strategies uh, for antibiotics that uh, really involve collaborating or cooperating with the immune system uh, to treat these superbugs. And then finally, uh, highlight, uh, in my mind, some of the important uh, ethical dilemmas uh, that might uh, provoke thinking towards the questions that will uh, fuel the discussion session. Okay? So um, antibiotics uh, have uh, cured more diseases than all the other drug classes combined by maybe 10 or 100-fold. Um, and, um, and this is a miracle of modern medicine. Uh, yet, uh, through the force of Darwinian evolution, I don't think there's any better example of Darwinian evolution than the reliable emergence of resistance in these living microbes when they are exposed uh, to the life or death challenge of uh, an antibiotic. Uh, they, uh, mutations develop, which change their biology, and they resist the organism. Uh, and every antibiotic which has uh, been developed, uh, there has been emergence of resistance among clinically important uh, organisms. And a major problem is that the pipeline of new antibiotics, which had its heyday in the 60s and 70s, uh, is really dwindling uh, to only a trickle these days. And that is because most of the major pharmaceutical companies uh, left the area of antibiotic development. Uh, does anybody want to venture a guess as to why? There's only one answer, right, to that question always, uh, money. So, um, you know, you typically with an antibiotic only treat a patient for uh, a week or two, you know, uh, and why spend all your drug development resources on developing a short-term drug when maybe you could focus on a drug for hypertension or diabetes where you would have a patient for years, maybe their entire life. Uh, and the second reason is the resistance itself. Uh, because of the potential for resistance evolving in the pathogen, uh, then the drug that is so promising a few years later may not work so well, right? And then uh, the profit uh, equation drops down. So there hasn't been a lot uh, of uh, work there. And then we have the emergence of resistance. Uh, we mentioned the uh, uh, evolutionary prerogative of the organism to evolve 
uh, resistance, but there are things that humans are doing uh, which are contributing to that. For example, uh, we overprescribe uh, antibiotics. It's uh, estimated that probably over half of the antibiotic prescriptions uh, that are um, uh, delivered in America are not necessary. They are for self-limited infections or viral infections that do not benefit uh, from the antibiotic. And this overprescription, of course, then affects all the bacteria in the body of that human uh, with the potential for selecting for resistance. Um, Also, patients are not very compliant often with their treatment. Uh, So they take their course only uh, a certain number of days and don't complete it, allowing a few resistant bacteria to survive in the body or, or take it haphazardly, that is known to increase the risk of resistance developing. Uh, also, there's a tremendous amount of use of antibiotics in agriculture. Uh, and when they're used in agriculture, it's not to treat infections in uh, the livestock animals. It's used to accelerate their growth. Uh, and allow them to reach market size sooner, which is the same reason that hormones are used in um, agriculture. And there's uh, significant problems because resistant strains that emerged in the uh, farms have made their way into the human populations. Many hospitals have poor uh, infection control uh, practices, especially as you enter the developing world. Uh, where there's also issues with just basic sanitation and antibiotics that would only be seen in a hospital setting uh, here with a ton of antibiotic exposure find their way and persist in the um, communities uh, in contaminated water supplies in places like India and China. Um, And we mentioned the lack of new antibiotics developed. Also, if you just go uh, across the border here or to many countries around the world, you don't even need a prescription uh, to get yourself antibiotics at a pharmacy. You can just go purchase some so you have self-prescription and uh, monitoring, uh, which may over uh, uh, lead to exaggerated problems. So a recent study... Uh, by the British government in collaboration with the Wellcome Trust estimated that on our current trajectory, if we don't do anything to change, uh, that there will be as many as 300 million excess deaths due to antibiotic resistance by 2050. Right now we have about 750,000 excess deaths globally annually. That's probably an underestimate. Do you know why there's an underestimate of antibiotic resistance deaths, why a hospital may not want to report that a patient uh, died of an antibiotic resistant infection rather than the underlying cause. You can see right away that it may be underreported. But at that trajectory and those numbers, uh, that will uh, cause these drug resistant superbugs to exceed cancer as a cause of human mortality by 2050. And the loss in productivity to the economy is a staggering 100 trillion in this study through 2050. And there have been uh, many uh, government agencies and health uh, agencies that have uh, highlighted the magnitude of the problem. Uh, The UN uh, convened their General Assembly uh, to focus on uh, this issue and all 160 plus member nations signed 
a um, understanding uh, memo to uh, try to do everything they can to coordinate uh, their uh, monitoring uh, uh, antibiotic stewardship and research efforts to this problem. Uh, our former President Obama uh, created a national action plan, which has uh, guided some of the initiatives from the National Institutes of Health. And uh, Margaret Chan, uh, the Secretary General of the World Health Organization, has really pointed out that uh, with some organisms developing resistance to all antibiotics that we could enter a post-antibiotic era, which would really effectively end modern medicine as we know it, and simple infections could one again, once again kill. So what are some of the bugs that cause these infections? Um, MRSA, many of you have heard of, methicillin-resistant strains of Staph aureus. That's probably the most common single antibiotic-resistant infection uh, in America, and we uh, now see more deaths associated with this pathogen than with HIV-AIDS. In the developing world, uh, tuberculosis, which infects a third of the world's population, only produces active disease in a subset of those, uh, but it's often uh, multidrug resistant, complicating therapy and cure. Um, Pathogens like Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which are hospital-associated pathogens, uh, cause things like pneumonia in ICU patients or infections in burn patients or cystic fibrosis patients are highly resistant. Perhaps the scariest ones uh, right now are these three, uh, carbapenem-resistant strains of Enterobacteriaceae. That's a big class of organisms that includes certain strains of E. coli, Klebsiella, Acinetobacter, that have become resistant to our last-line antibiotics, carbapenems, and even colistin. Uh, these uh, have very high mortality rates, maybe 30 to 40% mortality rates with systemic infection. Many of you have heard of C. diff or Clostridium difficile. It's not really an antibiotic-resistant pathogen, but it's a byproduct of antibiotic administration because when you eliminate the normal bacteria in your gut, then this pathogen can overgrow, and it produces a toxin which is very damaging to the intestinal lining and actually has a significant fatality rate. One of the most effective treatments for this, have you guys heard of that? Stool transplant, yeah. Uh, giving back uh, some good bacteria from a trusted uh, friend. Uh, although it's proven to be not any safer uh, to do it with your family and friends than with the general public. But hopefully there'll be just cocktails of just the right bacteria that uh, are coming in the future. And then uh, the sexually transmitted pathogen, Neisseria gonorrhea, is now highly drug resistant. Of course, that's very scary. Remember that it's not only pathogenic bacteria that are in our body, but the human microbiome contains hundreds of species of beneficial bacteria, uh, especially in our intestines, but also on our skin and other mucous membranes that um, are involved in making vitamins. They help digest foods. They also instruct our immune system. They cover the real estate that the pathogen would like to attached to, so they're a first barrier of defense against infection. They even make antibiotic molecules to kill the pathogens. But when we use broad-spectrum antibiotics, in addition to killing the pathogen, we 
by friendly fire or collateral damage can take out uh, the normal flora and set ourselves up for a vicious cycle of infection. And there is um, a excellent uh, physician scientist, Martin Blazer, is the chairman of medicine at uh, uh, Columbia University, uh, who has written a book, uh, Missing Microbes, about all the potential health associations that might come with the depletion of microbes uh, that have occurred in uh, the antibiotic era. You know, as antibiotics have come around, we have also seen an increase in autoimmune diseases, allergic diseases, and obesity, diabetes. And if you just take a mouse experimentally and treat it with antibiotics early in life, there is a significant increase uh, in uh, fat accumulation in that mouse. And if you look at a map of the United States and see where the most antibiotic prescriptions are, it looks very similar to the map uh, where um, you see the greatest rates of obesity. Is that coincidental? Also kind of looks like the map you see every four years uh, in the national. <laughs> I, don't, I, won't, I won't comment on that. So that's a little bit about the problem. Uh, and I want to tell you how we're thinking about it uh, in my laboratory to potentially come up with uh, solutions. So um, I have a laboratory that is at UCSD. Um, it's a big group that has uh, PhD scientists, but also a lot of physician scientists at different stages of training. Uh, we have uh, high school students uh, all the way up to uh, associate professors working in our group. And we study both ends of the equation, right? Uh, a lot of research is focused on the pathogen, and almost all antibiotics, really all antibiotics that we use in medicine today, are chemicals that were screened in a test tube for their ability to kill bacteria. And then if they were safe enough and they were able to be administered as a drug in the body, they became clinical antibiotics. But really when you think about it, if you have a serious infection, it's not simply that there was a bacteria with pathogenic potential. Uh, there was also a failure of the innate immune system. And that's what we're really interested in because all of us are exposed to these pathogens. I don't want to alarm you, but you know, 20% of you, uh, at least in this room, have Staph aureus right now. And half of those strains are methicillin resistant. And you have C. diff in your body, likely. And many other pathogens, like E. coli, that can develop antibiotic resistance. And these encounters with the pathogen come and go throughout your life, but we stay healthy because of our big, strong, innate immune system, which keeps bacteria from spreading deeper in the body. But occasionally they do spread deeper in the body, and when that happens, we characterize the properties of the disease-causing bacteria as virulence factors. Uh, a virulent bacteria is a disease-causing bacteria, and our lab is interested in discovering exactly what is it about the bacteria that allows it to cause disease and distinguishes it from all the good citizen bacteria. So uh, one of these pathogens, just this little dot, like Staph aureus in the blood, and this is a white blood cell, a neutrophil. This is the most common white blood cell uh, in our blood. And what happens when a bacteria gets in the blood? It would chase that uh, uh, neutrophil around uh, and ultimately catch it. And that's what I wanted to illustrate, uh, that basically we have a uh, specialized cells in our body whose ability uh, is to detect 
track down and kill the pathogens. But of course, the pathogens themselves are trying to stay alive. And that's what we have, this evolutionary arms race throughout time. And remember, we're dividing every 30 years or so, right? 40 years, if you waste a lot of time in medical school like me. Uh, they're, uh, they're dividing every 20 minutes. Uh, and they have a tremendous advantage in uh, developing the tools uh, to avoid being killed. And that's what you see with a pathogen like Staph aureus. Uh, Staph is able to produce disease in a normal human, normal adult, normal child, because it has mechanisms for blocking the recruitment of the white blood cell to the site of the infection, or blocking the activity of your complement system, which are proteins in your blood that can kill bacteria, degrading your own natural antibiotics, binding your antibodies on backwards so they don't work, or producing toxins that can kill the white blood cell before the white blood cell kills the bacteria. And that's why we see disease. It's a pretty scary looking slide with all these virulence mechanisms, but the good news is that if we can figure out the exact mechanism of a resistance to a particular arm of immunity, maybe we can try to take that away from the pathogen and resensitize it to innate immunity. So for the few research examples I wanna give you is to seek alternatives to classical antibiotics, chemicals in a test tube, Uh, But think of the host-pathogen interaction, we say, between our immune system and the drug and determine whether there could be other treatments there. For example, if we know the virulence factor that is allowing the bacteria to spread in the body, maybe we could target that. We could eliminate the protein that is causing disease. Instead of trying to kill the bacteria, what we're trying to do is disarm it to render it harmless. So what advantage do you potentially see of that? It would be a a very specific therapy just for the virulent bacteria, but leave the good citizen bacteria of the gut open. Also, we have hundreds of drugs in medicine that are there to dial down the activity of the immune system. We have uh, steroids and aspirin and ibuprofen and anti-cytokine therapies. The patient has arthritis or asthma or multiple sclerosis. We want lower immune activity. But I would argue if you have staph circulating in your blood or landing on your heart valve, your immune system is underactive. And why are there no drugs that we use in medicine to boost the activity of the white blood cell to help treat the infection, especially since white blood cells are a bunch of brakes and accelerators that regulate their activity. And it turns out that you can repurpose drugs that are used in other aspects of human medicine and uh, to achieve these goals and that they can work in concert with regular antibiotics. So one example that is uh, one of the things we've worked on in the lab for a long time is staph is a golden bacteria. Aureus is Latin for golden. And we discovered in our lab that the golden pigment of staph was a virulence factor. It's like carotenoids in carrots, and it's a very good antioxidant. And one of the ways your white blood cells tries to kill bacteria is by generating bleach and peroxide and oxidants to kill uh, the microbe. And we found that if you eliminated the uh, pigment from the bacteria by mutating the gene for its production, 
it couldn't cause disease anymore. So then we asked, could it be a target for therapy? What if you prevented the bacteria from becoming golden? Would it be easy for your immune system to clear? Now you come to the drug companies, who I said already are not interested in antibiotics because they're not that profitable, and you tell them, well, I have a great idea. It's not going to kill the bacteria at all. It's just going to change its color. Uh, And they were slamming the door uh, pretty quickly. But we got kind of lucky uh, because there was an overlap in the pathway by which the bacteria made the pigment and the pathway by which humans make cholesterol. And there's a pathway that the drug companies were extremely interested in. And you see here that uh, the enzyme that the bacteria use to make the pigment takes the same chemical and makes a molecule that differs just by one chemical bond from uh, the cholesterol pathway. And it turns out that there were cholesterol drugs in development that had been through phase two clinical trials for cholesterol lowering that blocked the human enzyme. And we found that the bacterial enzyme was very similar in structure to the human enzyme and that these cholesterol drugs would bind right into the critical site of the bacterial enzyme to block its activity. So this cholesterol drug prevented the bacteria from becoming golden. And because it prevented the bacteria from becoming golden, the white blood cells of the immune system could kill it. And we saw that the bacteria was less able to survive in human blood. And in a mouse model of infection, when we were giving them a serious systemic infection with staph, this cholesterol-lowering non-antibiotic, purely targeting the virulence, had a therapeutic effect that was quite dramatic. I'll give you one more example. Uh, The neutrophil, which is the frontline defender uh, of our body as a white blood cell, it has a specialized way of killing bacteria that has only recently been recognized. When it gets to the tissues, it undergoes a special death process where it releases its nucleus and all the DNA in the nucleus unwinds and it creates kind of a quicksand or a trap we call them neutrophil extracellular traps, or nets, that capture the bacteria. You know what this is? It's pus. That's what pus is. Pus is like super sticky. No one really wanted to study it because it's disgusting. (laughs) But it turns out it's very beneficial because the microbes get stuck in the pus and they can't spread further in the body. I'm going to venture, just looking around the audience, that there's quite a few users of this uh, class of medicine uh, here, uh, which is a mainstay of cholesterol therapy, statins, like Lipitor. Uh, They block uh, cholesterol biosynthesis at a step a little bit higher than the enzyme I showed you earlier, called HMGA-CoA reductase, and they're very effective at lowering LDL uh, cholesterol, raising your good cholesterol. Well, it's very interesting to me that there were clinical studies that were appearing that showed that patients who happened to be on statins and then got infections did better, did better than patients, uh, control patients who were matched for age and disease severity. And we knew that these serious infections like bloodstream infections and sepsis and pneumonia, that staph was going to be one of the major causes of that. So we wondered, well, how is this working? Is are statins affecting the way the white blood cells interact with the bacteria? 
Well, what we did is we took white blood cells from humans and mice, neutrophils and their partners called the macrophages, treated them with statins for a few hours, and then exposed them to bacteria. And they killed bacteria better, not just staph, but many other kinds of bacteria. And when we looked at what was happening, it turns out they weren't gobbling up the bacteria. That's called phagocytosis. They weren't making more of their bleach and peroxide. What they were doing is undergoing this special cell death process called nets and trapping the bacteria in the nets and killing them. We then started treating mice with statins. And when you took the white blood cells from the mice, they killed bacteria better and they made more nets. And if we challenged these mice with an infection with the methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, you had better clearance of the bacteria from the lung associated with increased release of these nets. So basically, a drug that tens of millions of people take in our country dramatically affects the way your white blood cells behave when they subsequently see bacteria, and in the case of Staph aureus, appears to be beneficial. And we recently corroborated a benefit in a large study of all the positive bloodstream infections in VA patients uh, and showed that patients who recently started on statins were doing better. Another drug many of you have heard of is tamoxifen. It's a mainstay of breast cancer therapy and uh, prophylaxis against recurrent breast cancer. This drug also boosts NETs. Uh, and we uh, figured out the molecular mechanism, but what's important is that if you give tamoxifen to um, uh, mice, you can protect them against staph infection. Even though it's not an antibiotic, it's working through your immune system. And the final point I want to make about uh, these microbes is the way that we test and evaluate antibiotics. This is a classical paper that was performed at Harvard uh, in the 1940s. Uh, and what were they trying to do at Harvard? They were trying to make an auger that all the different bacteria could grow in. Because if you are taking a sample from your patient, like you have a little baby and you're worried they have meningitis and you get a drop of spinal fluid, you want to make sure that you grow the bacteria and that you don't miss the pathogen so you know what you're treating. This uh, media is called Mueller-Hintonbroth. Over the years, Mueller-Hintonbroth has grown to be the single media that is used in every clinical laboratory around our country and throughout the developed world to do antibiotic testing. So if you get a bacteria from a patient with an infection, you test all the different antibiotics on the bacteria growing in this media and see which one is the most effective. The doctor then looks at the computer. They see R for resistant, S for sensitive. They pick a couple drugs from the S category, and off you go, crossing your fingers that the patient does better. But where is the infection? The infection is in the patient. And the patient is not made out of cation-adjusted Mueller-Hinton broth, uh, which is composed of beef heart extract and uh, casein and, uh, and uh, auger at arbitrary concentrations to rapidly grow bacteria. Um, they are made out of fluid and blood and tissues. And maybe the 
behavior of antibiotics would be different under these circumstances. And even more importantly, before a patient has even seen a doctor, their infection is already being treated by dozens of antibiotics, natural antibiotics that your body makes. There's all this research on how you can use two different pharmaceutical antibiotics together to maybe be synergistic against a pathogen. But no one studies how the pharmaceutical antibiotics interact with the endogenous antibiotics, your natural antibiotics that your body is making, and we're interested in studying that. We make a bunch of peptides, proteases. For example, here's one that we've been studying with Richard Gallo at UCSD for the last 15 years called cathelicidin. It's a little peptide made by your skin and your white blood cells, and it kills a bunch of bacteria. If you knock out that one peptide from the mouse, they become very susceptible to infection. So I want to give you a clinical example here. Here is a patient with methicillin-resistant staph aureus, bloodstream infection, and endocarditis, an infection on the heart valve. And not only is this bacteria methicillin-resistant, it's also resistant to vancomycin, the backup antibiotic. It's be- the MIC is increasing on therapy. And it turns out that this patient had 21 days of positive culture in the face of antibiotic therapy. We couldn't cure it. But based on research that George Sekoulis in my laboratory and I were doing, we noticed that there was an unusual synergy between an antibiotic, nafcillin, which is basically methicillin, it's not supposed to work against methicillin-resistant staph aureus, and peptide antibiotics that our immune system is already making. And when we gave nafcillin back to this patient with MRSA, they were cured. And we published clinical series of several patients like this. And here's what happens. This is the natural antibiotic that your body makes. It normally doesn't interact with methicillin-resistant staph aureus very well. But when you introduce nafcillin, which doesn't kill the bacteria, it sensitizes the bacteria to the action of the antimicrobial peptide, which is labeled red there and binding to the surface. If you sensitize the bacteria to the antimicrobial peptide, then your blood and your neutrophils and your skin cells, which are making the antimicrobial peptide, will kill the bacteria better. And that's what we could show in a mouse that administering this drug that's not supposed to work, that has no activity in the MIC assay, when understood in the context of the immune system, actually had a therapeutic benefit. And the final example I'm going to give you is with these dread superbugs, the carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae. Many of you have heard of that epidemic that occurred at UCLA associated with the uh, endoscopes uh, that led to a number of patient deaths. Uh, that's these bacteria. And here's what we're seeing. These are the actual isolates I'm going to show you in this study. Resistant to everything. There's actually only one antibiotic that kind of works. It's called colistin, but it's very toxic to the kidneys, so you're balancing getting the right dose and not harming the kidneys. But remember, the media that the testing is being done in is not the same as the patient. So what if we change the media to something that is more like what's in the patient? 
Well, in the laboratory, we use certain media to grow cells and organs. We call those tissue culture media. And they're designed to resemble the fluid and pH concentrations of the body. So we found some very surprising results here. Does anybody know what the most common antibiotic prescribed in America is? Moxicillin number two. This one is so convenient, just once a day. Azithromycin, right, exactly, the Z-Pak, you know. And it's a great antibiotic used for, you know, upper respiratory tract infections, bronchitis, otitis. What is it never used for? Any serious infection with these gram-negative organisms. If you had E. coli from your blood, Klebsiella, Acinetobacter, the ones that I just showed you, they wouldn't even test for azithromycin at no hospital in America. Why? Because it has no activity at all in the MIC testing, in the standard bacteriologic broth. But what if you change that media to the tissue culture media? All of a sudden, these horrible numbers that indicate resistance dramatically lower. Very small concentrations of the antibiotic that you could easily achieve in vivo uh, are effective. Here's a curve for this pan-resistant, meaning resistant to everything Klebsiella. You can see here that it still grows in the tissue culture media just as well as it grows in the bacteriologic media, but it's only killed in the tissue culture media. So are we missing something very important? Not only are we missing this difference in media, look at the synergy between azithromycin and your natural antibiotics. Here we are using one quarter of the concentration of azithromycin that's necessary to kill the bacteria, one quarter of the concentration of the antibiotic, but you put them together and all the bacteria killed. These are log scales, so every number here is a tenfold reduction in bacteria. You can kill all the bacteria. Why is this happening? Because if you have a little bit of antimicrobial peptide around, the bacterial membrane is weakened just enough for the azithromycin to get in. And here you see fluorescently labeled green azithromycin getting inside the superbug. And when it's inside the superbug, it blocks protein synthesis and kills it. Here's what's happening over on the left, the testing conditions. It doesn't get inside because there's no recognition of the immune system and it's a bacteriologic media that is totally non-physiologic. So the testing that dictates what doctors do, what drugs are available in the formularies, is missing the whole immune system component, and that could provide a useful activity. So if azithro is working, like we see here, it should help patients with these serious infections. Well, we'll start in mice. One dose of azithromycin reduced by a hundredfold the concentration of bacteria in a lung infection with this pan-resistant gram-negative bacteria. And there was less evidence of inflammation in the lung, less evidence of injury, and at a higher dose that would kill 80% of the mice, you had dramatic protection against mortality with just two doses of azithromycin. And we're beginning to see anecdotal reports of reintroducing azithromycin for these highly resistant strains. So the final scientific point I want to make is that pediatricians and uh, internists uh, and infectious disease specialists 
have become very complacent as a byproduct of the years of success of antibiotic therapy. And there hasn't been any innovation. And we still have just one kind of antibiotic, the chemical in a test tube, just like Alexander Fleming envisioned. And contrast that with cancer. So every family is affected by cancer. A third of people will develop cancer. There are so many cancers that have terrible prognosis. The cancer doctors never had the chance to become complacent because of the poor outcomes. And the field of cancer research and the advocacy agencies and the, and the NIH, everybody has always been trying to innovate, to come up with cures for cancer. So what did we find 15 years ago? Many of you may have heard of a drug, Gleevec, uh, that is a cancer drug for leukemia. It targets the mutation that occurs in the cancer cell. And it doesn't affect the normal cell. And it has made dramatic improvements in chronic leukemia outcomes. The first cancer drugs were just like the first antibiotics. They were things like cyclophosphamide and mustard. They killed dividing cells in a test tube. But then you lost your hair, your mucous membranes became raw, your uh, white blood cell, red blood cell, platelet counts went down, and there were a lot of complications. We have targeted therapy now. That's exactly analogous to targeting the virulence factor of the pathogen while leaving the normal flora alive. And even more dramatic, in the last five years or so, we have cancer immunotherapy. So many of you know our former president, Jimmy Carter, had malignant melanoma to the brain at age 91. I think five or six years ago, that would have been a death sentence in months to even a 19-year-old. But he received a new therapy, a checkpoint inhibitor, uh, that unlocks the ability of his white blood cells, T cells, to kill the cancer. And five months later, I think he was on TV declaring himself cancer-free at his 92nd birthday, probably built a couple houses. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and that is exactly analogous to what I was talking about, using drugs to boost the activity of the white blood cells against cancer. So that's the point. This is antibiotic therapy 2017, and we need to crack open in the next decade all these other possible drugs, drugs that sensitize the pathogen to the immune system, block the virulence mechanisms, or boost the activity of the white blood cells. So to end the science part, I just want to thank uh, my lab, which is in uh, this nice new building that you can see from the freeway as you drive by UCSD, uh, called Biomedical Research Facility and uh, all the collaborators that I have at UCSD and around uh, the country and the world. So now, a few slides on just some ethical issues, just to plant the seeds in the head as we go into the break. So here are some ethical challenges in infectious disease control that are made worse by antibiotic resistance. Um, for example, if a patient has antibiotic-resistant infection, there is the thought possibly of quarantining them or doing mandatory reporting of the patients. Is that ethically acceptable uh, to reduce risk uh, to the public at large? Uh, so it's a battle between patient autonomy and infection control and the protections uh, of others. Uh, also, the increasing health care costs 
and longer hospital stays associated with antibiotic resistance are going to put a strain on an already financially strapped system. <coughs> antibiotic resistance is also worse in the poorest countries uh, that have the least well-developed medical infrastructure uh, and antibiotic resistance, therefore, uh, disproportionately uh, impacts uh, these countries. And uh, are we going to be able to provide international assistance and the capacity building that would be required to support these developing uh, healthcare systems? And while it's important to reduce the risk uh, of antibiotics to avoid uh, highly drug-resistant strains in our hospital, in these developing countries where often access to antibiotics is uh, under, you know, underutilized for the poorest people, they need more antibiotics, right? So you see this dynamic uh, going on. Also, I think there are ethical issues uh, related to the veterinary antibiotics in livestock uh, and agricultures. Uh, because more than half of the use of antibiotics is in this sector. We've seen that countries that reduced the re uh, deployment of antibiotics in agriculture had a big impact on their rates of antibiotic resistance. But if we don't use antibiotics in agriculture, there'll be some animals who have infections that may be treatable that would no longer uh, be uh, curable. And uh, the use of antibiotics has increased uh, food production, and we have areas of the world like South uh, Saharan Africa where we have the potential for human starvation and famine, and if we um, reduce efficiency in our food production, that could lead to an ethical challenge. Also, there's the concept of uh, antibiotic use in our own generation and uh, the effects it would have on future generations. Uh, as antibiotics become less effective, uh, we have to decide on a fair distribution uh, or are we going to reserve uh, antibiotics uh, for future generations? It's basically a non-renewable resource uh, like uh, we talk of uh, with uh, energy or you know, uh, global warming. If we don't do uh, something now, it could have a huge impact on uh, future generations. Um, and a patient's individual interest in receiving all the antibiotics necessary to cure their infection, if that is uh, used across the board, then we're going to have some impacts on the rates in future generations. And the final thing is thinking of antibiotic resistance as a collective action uh, problem. You know, the, the issue is that most of the risks uh, associated with antibiotic resistance are borne by the public as a whole. Uh, when you see epidemics of antibiotic-resistant pathogens, future uh, individuals uh, will suffer, whereas in an individual patient, aggressive action to eradicate the pathogen might be thought to benefit them. But we are seeing that the risks of antibiotics may not be as trivial as we once thought they were. As a pediatrician, I used to look in an ear of a patient 20 years ago, and you'd say, well, it looks a little bit red. Just to be safe, here's an antibiotic. But if that, uh, some data might suggest I could give a patient an antibiotic and increase their risk of obesity or asthma by 25% uh, at a year of age, would that then be an acceptable risk uh, with all that we're learning about the immune system? So just some food for thought. I'll uh, stop there. I think, uh, Michael, we're going to our... Uh,
uh, break and question session, and I'll return on the stage with Michael as my guide through the ethics. So thank you for your attention. Uh, so I'm going to start with, uh, my understanding is you started out actually in evolutionary biology. Am I correct about that? Is that? Uh... <laughs> yes, I was an um, undergraduate at Reed College. Uh, I don't know if anybody knows this uh, Portland liberal arts institution. I think it's best known for a famous dropout named Steve Jobs. Uh, <laughs> after a year, he learned calligraphy there, which is the basis of the type fonts. But um, I, uh, I did study evolutionary biology uh, of frogs, uh, trying to figure out uh, how they adapted to changing environments. And I do think that when I uh, ultimately went to medical school with a, a very open mind as to what specialties I might pursue, I was drawn to infectious diseases because it is a evolutionary struggle uh, between uh, the microbes and uh, the host, that's us, uh, the human for human medicine, and, um, and that you, it's exciting to look at uh, the question uh, from both sides of the equation. And uh, all the things that are really important in your immune system and all the things that are really important in bacterial virulence cut both ways. It's really interesting. You know, everything that's good in the immune system can also be harmful. And everything that is important in bacterial virulence is also used by the bacterium, I'm sorry, used by the host to recognize the bacteria and to activate its immune response. Uh, because of evolution. Uh, why would we just sit by and allow virulence, virulence, virulence to happen to us without reacting to it? So I think an evolutionary perspective is very useful for research in our field. Yeah, well, so you pretty much anticipated what I had in mind, but I, part of what I wanted to get at was the, the link between very basic research and thinking that helps to inform research that ultimately has a very real direct application. And, and often I think that's missed in our society that right. people aren't seeing that science isn't always just about asking the immediate question. You have to actually ask more basic questions before you get there. I think that's true. I mean, there were a lot of unanswered questions with the pathogens. You'd be surprised, you know, that in the 1990s and 2000s, uh, that laboratories like mine were still able to kind of figure out why staff is golden or why strep are in a chain. Uh, and there's still many basic questions. Why do we have a fever? You know, <laughs> uh, a simplistic answer is that certain pathogens don't grow as well as a higher temperature. But we really think that it uh, instructs the immune system and the immune cells function. And that's another area uh, to study. Another big area of research in our lab is platelets. Platelets are more abundant in your blood than white blood cells uh, like neutrophils. And now we're recognizing that they're even more important than the white blood cells in killing staph. But no one studies them because uh, for their immune function uh, because they're so well known for blood clotting and other properties. So really interesting. And that means we can reposition those platelet drugs uh, into the infectious disease arena. 
Okay, so my next question is, is sort of an overriding question that I, I suspect a lot of people might be thinking. So the, we had initial antibiotics. There were mechanisms by which they worked. Um, we found that, of course, unless you completely wipe out the bacterium you're attacking, the most resistant bacteria remain. So that presumably will be the case with virtually any strategy you try. The strategies you described are all very clever, but I guess what I'm wondering is, what's the case for saying we should try? What, what is, how would you describe this, this The case for trying or, beyond antibiotics. I think um, the understanding is that we might potentially unlock a toolbox of readily available drugs. I think many of us enter research with a, it's really a romantic notion that we'll discover a drug. You know, I had that romantic notion also. But first of all, to get a drug even to enter into a clinical trial in a human, just for safety, that takes years and years of research. Probably you've raised maybe $10 million. Everything looks great. All the experiments look great. There's a medical need. There's an economic model for profitability. How many drugs that enter a clinical trial make it to be an actual drug, right, that is uh, approved by the FDA and used in patients? You know, anybody have an idea what the percentage is? Low. It's about 1%. 1%. So statistically, I will never invent a drug. doesn't matter how good a scientist I is. That's, you know, I am. It's, it's like... You know, if you're a very good basketball player at your high school, people, your friends will tell you you'll play in the NBA. But statistically, you're not going to play in the NBA because there's hundreds of high schools, you know, and better players around the world. So I've been really interested in asking, what about all the drugs that are already used in human medicine? Why are they used in human medicine? They're used because they have some ability to change the way our cells and our organ systems behave. They um, cure dysfunction of cells. Well, white blood cells, in addition to the specialized functions, are still cells themselves. They have the same 23 you know, paired chromosomes as all the other cells in the body. And they need to generate energy, they need to repair damage, they need to do all sorts of things. And it turns out, for infectious disease, often it's not so much a, a particular killing molecule that the white blood cell makes that's so important that everybody does their research on. It's the general health of the white blood cell. Like, how's it feeling? It's got plenty of weapons. They work most of the time. And that means, I think, that you can take all the drugs in human medicine that change the way cells behave and then look at them again in the context of infectious disease uh, because when you do make an observation like that, then people can start using it right away because the drug is already there. So this is known as repurposing. I think is applicable to a lot of fields. And then the other thing is just, you know, we are proceeding agnostic of the uh, immune system, even though the immune system is obviously part of the equation. Uh, and uh, we have seen the benefits 
in other fields of medicine uh, like uh, um, inflammatory disorders and cancer of using the immune system in our therapy. We know it works in infectious disease in vaccines, in prophylaxis. Why can't we use that in direct therapy? And in fact, monoclonal antibodies, which are an antibody that you prepare and purify in high quantities to administer to a patient who has a particular problem, uh, can be designed to target these highly drug-resistant pathogens and I think would also be a nice uh, addition uh, to the repertoire. So a virulence factor inhibitor, like I described, is also subject to the evolution of resistance, but it's a whole new class of drugs. And for every pathogen, they pretty much have to be firing on all cylinders to cause disease. You can take away numerous virulence factors and tip the balance back in favor of the host. So each time you unlock your thinking in that way, you open up dozens of new drug targets. So it's a numbers game, you know, to uh, bring more ideas. You know, we just haven't developed any novel classes of antibiotics for really only a couple classes in the last 15 years that have emerged. So it could be that the number of natural molecular shapes that target the core biology of the bacteria to kill them may be exhausted, even if we go to the rainforest. At UCSD, we're trying the deep ocean. I think that's a good idea. We probably haven't unlocked all the chemistry since it covers 70% of the globe. But the soil, been there, done that. Uh, I'm not sure that's going to be the solution. So creativity. Yeah, so I mean, so part of what you've covered is what I know historically that one, the approach initially for looking at antibiotics was literally to look in every dirt, sewer, outpost you could find to see if there was, there was something interesting in there that could be used as an antibiotic. And now you've set, you've you found a wide variety of other paths, you and others, that one might look. But ultimately, what I was getting at is, no matter which of these things we use, we, we're, we're never going to... This isn't a battle that's some, someday won. It's a battle that no. is necessarily a continuous battle. I agree. I think that that's uh, true. I don't believe that we will uh, achieve uh, a drug therapy to which microbes will not be able to develop a workaround. So the question is, do you collaborate around the globe? And I would hope so. <laughs> uh, yes, I would say, you know, I would like to think of that as almost the defining feature of our laboratory. Um, I've been at UCSD almost 20 years now, and I've published scientific papers with 50 different UCSD faculty. And we have collaborations all around the world already this year. Uh, I have traveled to India and China and uh, will soon be in uh, England and Norway uh, to interact with collaborators who have great ideas and technologies. It's truly to do translational research, which is to bring basic science discoveries to patients, is by definition, a multidisciplinary field. No single lab uh, can do it. And uh, in addition to trying to do basic science that addresses clinical problems, we like to have a lot of physicians in our lab 
who are observing unusual uh, occurrences or patterns in their patients that might have a scientific basis. Uh, so why do some patients do very well and others struggle? And is there uh, a uh, understanding that we can glean from that? And we're trying to address that with all the latest technologies. Genomics, um, measuring all the molecules in the body simultaneously, we call that metabolomics. Uh, and then systems analysis, uh, which is basically uh, computer-aided engineering to try to take all that data and construct a model and then see uh, whether there's any Achilles heels in the pathogen or pathways that we can improve in the human uh, to get a handle of the infection. Actually, we're very lucky um, with systems biologist Bernard Paulson, microbiome expert Rob Knight, metabolomics expert, expert Peter Dorstein, uh, and others at UCSD, we received a nearly $10 million grant to look at antibiotic resistance at a systems level, with the theme being basically related to the research I presented, where the antibiotics work differently in the human then they work in the test tube and to try to understand why that is and whether we can change the drug discovery paradigm. Okay, well, on that note, it's clear to me we need probably another session to cover some, so many of these issues, but I want to thank you for a really okay, interesting presentation. Okay, it was my pleasure. Audience. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.